Let's turn our Bibles over to Revelation chapter 15. As we do, we are finding ourselves in the middle of the tribulation period, which is a seven-year period of time that the book of Revelation focuses on events that happen on earth. They're events that follow the rapture of the church. Halfway through the tribulation period, there's a, there's a bit of a, a, a focal point and a pivot. And the first three years, three and a half years of the tribulation period, the Antichrist is now in power. He is assisted by the, the false prophet. They have instated a one-world government. Government. They've instated a one-world monetary system, a one-world religious system. For the globalists, they might go, that's great, it's finally come. But that idea of wanting peace and wanting this, what they believe to be this utopia world order, will be anything other than that. It will be chaos. It will be disorder. The one world governance will also command and demand the world, the entire world, to worship Satan indirectly, but directly through the worship of the Antichrist. Uh, an image of the Antichrist will be constructed and placed, most scholars believe, in what will be the third temple, the third temple that is yet to be built there on the Temple Mount. And they, people will be pressured. There will be immense pressure upon the world to fall in line. There will be many that will just be like, yeah, this is great. This guy had a deadly wound. He's now somewhat miraculously, he must be supernatural. We'll worship him. Others will be forced. And you won't be able to buy and sell unless you take the mark of the beast. On your right hand or on your forehead. So enormous pressure. And there will be the option. Worship the beast take his image and live or don't and die. When we come into the second half of the tribulation period, this is really where we're at. So the, the focal point shifts from the kingdom of darkness really gaining ground globally to God kind of going, okay, enough is enough. And now I'm going to start moving towards the advancement of my kingdom and the coming of my son. And so we pick up on this really beginning in chapter 14. We're going to be in chapter 15 this morning. Only eight verses, the shortest chapter in the book of Revelation, but very action-packed. But in chapter 14, we begin a series of six visions. And the visions are what we call, they're, they're parenthetical. In other words, they're not in chronological order. It's as if John is telling this story, and he's like, this is what's going on in the end times. And, and before he gives you the details about like this one event that's going to happen first, he gives you a snapshot in parentheses of some future events. So in chapter 14, for instance, that first vision, he begins to go, well, before the final judgment of God, which would be, as we're going to see here in chapter 15, the last of the, the judgments, we had the, the seal judgments, then the trumpet judgments, now the bull judgments. Now, now before that, 
there's the second coming. He kind of just envisions that in parentheses. It's just a snapshot, and I call these snapshots of hope. And then the details of the second coming aren't until chapter 19, and we'll get there, and there's, it's really a detailed description of that. But then the first vision, he sees, he sees three angels, and the first angel comes, and he is throughout the world proclaiming the gospel of God. And he's doing that to every nation, to every tribe, and every tongue. In other words, there's no one that will be, on, be beyond the reach of the gospel. Another snapshot of hope. In a, in a Christ-rejecting world, God's like, eh, before I really, you know, unleash my final worst series of judgment in the bull judgments, a snapshot of hope. I'm going to give people another chance. Then a second angel appears in chapter 14 as well. And he begins to talk about the doom, like the final world empire, the final world governance under the Antichrist and the false prophet. It's coming down. He predicts the doom. That angel comes and goes, hey, all you globalists and all you people that are like worshiping, you know, the Antichrist and you're buying and selling because you've taken the mark or maybe you're on the earth and you haven't, understand this. It's all coming down. And he predicts the destruction of it. Then the third angel that comes is, you got the proclamation of the gospel, the proclamation that the world governor, government is coming down in the religious system. And then the third angel just comes, and it's again just another snapshot of hope. And he goes and drills in on, hey, 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 don't take the mark. It's already being enforced on the world. Don't take the mark. Don't do it. And don't worship the beast. Because in the event of you doing that, you're sealing your fate in eternity apart from God in hell. That's where we're at as we're moving into the series of six visions that John is going to have. And that brings us into uh, chapter 15, where we read in verse 1, where it says, Then I saw... Another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. So this is a snapshot again of the coming judgment, the, the, the final wave of God's judgment in the bull judgments. And we won't see them really begin until chapter 16. So it's just a snapshot that this is what's about to come. And then in verses 2 and 4, another snapshot of hope. And it's really a reassurance to the people of God that there's a group of people in heaven that, that just, man, if you just hold out and you don't cave in to the pressures to deny Christ it, in your time, you will be seated with Jesus Christ in heaven. It's just a snapshot of that. And we're going to take a look at, at, at who they are and, and what are they doing when they are in heaven. And then we're going to get an idea of their perspective in heaven as to who God is, listen, and as to his nature, his character around the throne, but also as to who God is as it relates to earth and God meeting out judgment. Then the chapter will close with heaven opening up and seven angels being handed the seven bowls of wrath which will be poured out 
upon the earth, and then God's wrath that he had designed for the tribulation period will have come to a place of completion. Again, that will, that will we'll get there, and that will be at the very, very end of the tribulation period. It will take us all the way through to the very end of the tribulation period, the battle of Armageddon there in, 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 in chapter 19, and then the second coming of Christ. God's judgment will accomplish what he has purposed, and the time will come to an end. Now, I just want to just for a moment make this statement that we need to remember that this warning here in the book of Revelation is for the entire world. It was relative to the, the church as the first letter was circulated somewhere around 95 AD, and it's just as relative today as we read it. It's a, it's a good warning. It's a call to repent if you need to repent. It's a call to think through God and his character because he is a God of love, but he's also a God that will judge. And he is a God that will pardon. He was a God that will forgive. And he is a God that will save. And he is a God that will take you to heaven. Amen? So that, that's important as well. So the, the sign here, he sees another sign in heaven. And it's like great and marvelous. This is the third of three signs. And um, the two preceding signs were found in chapter 12. There was the great sign. that was the woman. It was a picture of Israel. The second was the great red dragon, which represented Satan and his control of um, the world empires, the final government, and whatnot included in all that. And then this third one, this great and marvelous sign, which represents the final judgment of God upon the Christ rejecting in the tribulation period. And you'd be like, well, that's kind of an interesting way to describe the judgment of God. It's great and marvelous. What a great sign. Well, it is in the sense that it is the last. After this series of seven bowls of God's wrath being poured out, it's complete and there is no more. And so in that sense, it's great and a marvelous sign. We see seven angels having the seven last plagues. Um, all three series of judgments, beginning with the seal judgments, then the trumpet judgments, were meted out in a series of seven, one after another until seven, the number of completion, and it was complete. Um, up until this point in time, as we look at the, the, the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments, the earth has been radically impacted by the judgment of God. But the trumpet judgments were worse and more intense and more severe than the seal judgments and the bowl judgments are going to be worse and more severe than the trumpet judgments and the seal judgments. At this particular point in time, if you're just reading through the book of Revelation, kind of going through it, you'd be like, okay, well, let's just see what's happened so far. Well, the Antichrist is on the scene. The false prophet is on the scene. Huh. We, we look here, and a third of all vegetation has been destroyed. We look and, oh, a third of all of the oceans have been polluted. They've turned to blood. A third of all of the fresh water has been polluted. All of the, the earthquakes that have taken place so far up until this point, we see islands shaken out of their sockets. Mountains that have been shifted from their original state. It's going to be intense. Some scholars have, have looked at this and they've done the, 
kind of the math on whatever John has said about the amount of people that have died, the demons that have been unleashed from the bottomless pit to sting people. We've had a whole host of demons that would build this massive army that would come and attack God's people. And about half of the world's population quite likely has perished at, at this point in the tribulation period. So it's been really, really bad, and it's going to get really, really worse with the bull judgments. So it says here when it comes to the angels having these, the seven angels having these seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. Now this is a, a good word, a snapshot of hope again to us who are believers because in the end times there's a lot of talk about the wrath of God. What it is, who's going to face it, and who is not. Paul, in his writings, writing to the church in Thessalonica, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he begins to talk about the rapture of the church. He's talking about end times events. He talks about the rapture of the church. Then he gets into chapter 5, and he begins to talk about the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is not a specific day. It's a reference to a period of time. It begins at the rapture of the church, but it also includes what follows. And it's the tribulation period that he begins to talk about next. In light of that, Paul says in verse 3 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, that at that time people are going to be crying out for peace and safety. Hmm, interesting, because at the beginning of the tribulation period, that's exactly what the Antichrist will promise, and when he comes, he will bring peace. But give him some time. Paul would then say, listen... 1 Corinthians 5, 4 through 6. Listen, brethren, you're not to be in darkness or you're not in darkness. Like intellectual and moral darkness as it relates to this stuff. Talking to believers, there was an assumption. You get this. So that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. There were people in the early church at that particular time that were coming around going, ah, the rapture's already happened, tribulation's already happened, that's also in our past. And, and, and Paul is looking to the church and going, no, 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 that whole you know, preterist view that we have today since the 70s was alive and well back then. No, no, that is not true. Don't be in darkness. Don't be ignorant about this. You know better than that. Yeah, we're still here. We haven't seen no Antichrist rise to power. And that's the argument he's giving here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. But in verse 9, he says this, For God has not appointed us to wrath. Revelations 3, verse 10, Speaking Jesus to the church of Philadelphia in the letter that he had written to them. And that church represents the church that will be alive and well during the end times and to them, Jesus promises there in verse 10, to keep the church from this hour of trial which will come upon the earth. A reference to the tribulation period. Keep from in the Greek. Teriok, away from or out from is the idea. Moving forward in our text here, verse 2. Next, John sees something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who have their victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, 
and over the number of his name. And they're standing. They're standing on the sea of glass. And they've got harps of God. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Two separate songs saying, the songs kind of make this up, great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways. O King of saints, who shall not fear you? O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifest. So, Let's back up and let's look at this heavenly scene. As John is there, he sees these seven angels coming forward and they're all like being handed these bowls of wrath. There's the judgment of God pictured here. It's about to be meted out on the Christ rejecting on the earth. And so in the midst of God's wrath, we see God's grace. Another snapshot of hope. The grace is this group of people that are around the throne and they have harps and they're singing. This is, every time we hear a harp in the book of Revelation, it's pictured in, in an eternal perspective, which this is, this is where we get our picture of angels having harps. I don't know why they always make them small and chubby and pink cheeks and all that floating on a cloud. I don't see that here. But these aren't angels, as we're going to see. These are redeemed Christians who lost their life for the sake of Christ during the tribulation period. And now they're in heaven and they're standing. They've given harps of God and they're, they're singing some songs with words that we need to think through directly to God. Sea of glass. This is the second time we see it in the book of Revelation. We saw it in Revelation chapter 4 as well. It was described as the crystal sea. If you had a, a sea of glass, this is where a lot of surfers go. There will be an ocean in heaven. They all talk about that. It's going to be glassy all the time. It's not what this is talking about. So surfers, chill out. <laughs> this is talking about John looking over at the throne, and he saw the reflection of God everywhere he looked. And the fact that it was like a crystal spoke of the holiness of God, the purity of God, the power of God in chapter 4. But here it's mingled with smoke. And smoke is... It's, it's picturing the judgment of God from the throne of God that's about to be meted out from God himself through these angels on the Christ-rejecting people of the earth. And it's kind of, it is, it's an interesting thing because Hebrews chapter 8 and 9 talks about like the tabernacle of God on, on planet earth and how it is a model of heaven, the, the, this, this shadow of heaven, the holy of holies, Models the throne of God. The seven branch candlesticks models the lamps of fire before the throne. The cherubim over the mercy seat models the four living creatures around the throne. These cherubim that are just worshiping the Lord. The priests in the, around the tab tabernacle that are just ministering on behalf of the Lord and worshiping the Lord and what not. They, they, they model the 24 elders that we see at the throne in chapter 4 and 5, 7, and even 11, the Ark of the Covenant models the Ark of the Covenant in heaven. We saw that in chapter 11, verse 19. Then there's the altar of incense, which models the incense altar in heaven in chapter um, uh, 8. But then there's the bronze laver. 
If you went to the tabernacle on the earth, you would walk to the outside and there was this bronze laver and in it was water and the priest would go there and they would deal with their sins. Symbolically, they would wash their hands. And it was a picture of God's judgment, the judgment of God judging their sin. And that bronze laver uh, in the tabernacle and even in the temple on earth is a model of the sea of glass in heaven. And again, mingled with fire, speaking of the judgment of God that he is about to pour out. And then standing on the sea of glass. We get an idea, a more detailed account of who these people are that are around the throne with the Lord. These are the ones who have the victory over the beast, that's the Antichrist, over his image, that's, that's the image that was erected and they were told to worship, and his mark, that's the number of 666 on the hand or on the, 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 the forehead, the number of the beast that they were enforcing people to take, otherwise you couldn't buy and sell. These are people who were alive during the tribulation period and did not give in or cave into the pressures to fall in line with the Antichrist. There was political pressure. Fall in line with the new government. There was religious pressure. Fall in line with the new one-world religious system. Worship the beast. There was economic pressure. Fall in line with the only way to buy and sell. Take the mark of the beast. And in Revelation chapter 13, it talks about these pressures being so intense that it pushed people to the brink of a life or death decision. Because the option was this, either fall in line with the government and with worshiping the beast and live or do not and die. So these redeemed here, standing on the sea of glass in heaven, chose Jesus Christ over the Antichrist. Can we go, praise God. You know, oftentimes... Oftentimes we, we do these memorial services for people. We just did one this week for Lori Friary, a dear saint here. And oftentimes we'll have people get up and they, they talk about their life. They, they memorialize them. And then they, they talk about their faith. And I'm sitting here and when I'm hearing someone has finished well, I just want everyone to stand up and just applaud. Didn't they finish well? How many of you guys have loved ones that finished well? I mean... Now, just so you know, they're there, and they're not thinking about us, okay? I, I, I actually, I don't want to get into this, but I, I believe that they're there, and their focus is on Jesus Christ, okay? And we should be like, thank you, my dad's there in 2019. I can't wait for that eternal embrace that's coming. But he's there, and his focus is not on me, and he's not watching over me. I don't believe in that. Jesus Christ sent his Holy Spirit to do that. He doesn't need my dad's help. It's biblical, by the way. I'll stop there. But here in heaven, what do we see? People just like you and I who lived in a fallen world and refused to cave in and deny Jesus Christ. For them, it cost them their life. These are what we would call tribulation martyrs. And they are now standing victoriously before the throne. We have, don't miss this, a perspective in heaven, and you know what the perspective would have been like on earth. Tribulation's yet to come, but as they would have been living life in the tribulation 
on earth. They missed the rapture, so they weren't saved. They're on earth. And now all the pressure. Fall in line with the one world government. Fall in line with the one world religious system. Worship the beast. Fall in line with the one world economic system. And these came to know Jesus. They refused the Antichrist and came to know Jesus Christ. But what would have been the world's perspective? Those that surrounded the Antichrist towards those who accepted Jesus Christ. What would have been the earthly perspective? Come on, man. Fall in line. How foolish would it be? Come on, just take the mark. Now you can buy and sell. Take the mark. Worship the beast. Come on. Fall in line with this one world order. How foolish the world would think you are if you didn't do that. You're a loser. They would look at you as someone that's been defeated by making the wrong choice, by aligning yourself with the wrong God. Hmm. Now let's move over, and I don't mean to go like, this is the earthly's perspective over there, this is the heavenly, but let's go to the heavenly perspective. Hmm. I don't see anyone here in this song, in this setting, singing any blues. I don't hear anybody go, how could a God of love allow that? You don't see any of that here. You see them, here we go, who have died in the faith. Where are they? They're standing. What are they doing? They're holding harps. What else are they doing? They're singing. You know what that tells me? There's no soul sleep. They're not just some soul in a grave somewhere, which some people have bad theology kind of rattling around in their head. No, 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 no. That's not the case. Guess where else they're not? They're not in this place that the Bible doesn't talk about called purgatory. They're not there. I, I, I hear people talk about it, praying someone from, from, from here to there. Man, if it, was, if it was that easy, like I could just pray someone from like a really bad place to the right place, heaven, God would not have needed to send his son. But he did send his son. So I could put my faith, we could put our faith in him, so that the moment we are absent from the body, we are present with the Lord. Amen? So 2 Corinthians 5.8 talks about this. Paul talks confidently to believers who are questioning eternity and questioning death. He goes, we're confident. We're just confident in this. To be absent from our body is to be present with the Lord. He's like, we know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a, a building from God talking about another habitation designed for eternity. It's not made with hands, but it's eternal in the heavens. He goes, we groan for that. Earnestly desire to be Further clothed, not unclothed, just disembodied spirits floating around, but further clothed. That mortality might be swallowed up by life, by eternal life. And he who has prepared us for this very thing is God. And he's given us his spirit as an assurance, as a guarantee for that very thing. For to be absent from the body, verse 8, is to be present with the Lord. So their standing on the sea here symbolizes something. It symbolizes and it reflects the faithfulness of God in upholding those who remain faithful to him and his word in difficult times. And that'd be a word of encouragement to all of us today. Another snapshot of hope. 2 Timothy 2.12, if we suffer with Christ, we shall reign with him. It, it reminds me of that famous Jim Elliott quote, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep 
to gain what he cannot lose. And so in verse 2 as well, they have these harps of God. In Psalm 137, there's a picture of the nation of Israel going into Babylonian captivity. And you can imagine what that was like. 70 years, they're going to be like in bondage to the enemy. And as they're leaving, listen, there was nothing to sing about. So it says they hung their harps on the willows. Fascinating. Harps then become the instrument of joy. They are held when it's time to recognize God's victory, to praise God. fact is, when they come back and we see them coming back, once again, or in the book of Nehemiah, the harps are once again being strummed because they have a reason to sing. Their God has redeemed them and freed them and has brought them home. No doubt it's the same with these saints during the tribulation period. There's not much to strum about, not much to sing about until they experience the victory and the deliverance that they found in Christ the moment that they die. And so because of the victory and the deliverance of Jesus Christ, they now stand in heaven strumming away. And I want you to really think through this. I'm a, I'm a practical guy. I look at the word, I'm like, well, what, what else is going to be in heaven? I know surfers like to look for the sea and the ocean and whatever you're into, you like to, is there in heaven? Is my dog going to be there in heaven? Maybe, no cats, of course, but it's, it's just, you know, who knows? I think when you get there, you're not going to be like, where's my dog? Dog lover's like, I don't know, Lance, you don't know my dog. You know what's going to be in heaven? Instruments. You know what's not? Pulpits. Interesting. Singing, no teaching. Worshiping, no evangelizing. You know there's not going to be any baptismals in heaven? We've got a cool baptismal out back. We baptize all kinds of people around here that give their life to Jesus. Huh, no more of that. But there will be instruments and singing. So I'm done when I die. Mead has to keep going on throughout eternity. <laughs> My gifts are done. His just beginning. I want you to think through this. Just really think through this. When you first walk into this room and when you begin to worship, does your worship begin to be a little more engaging with Jesus the longer you worship him? Raise your hand if that's true. A little louder sometimes too? Some of you guys have even raised one hand by now. You've been here for seven years. You're like, okay. <laughs> What's true here is going to be true in eternity. How loud do you think worship will be at, I don't know, 2,000 years in? The more we see him, the more we gaze upon him. It's almost as if the one thing really, really right about this is we will finally have it right. It's all about him. And we'll be free from the all about us. And it's just going to be insane. And here's just a picture, a heavenly perspective. <laughs> wow. And how ambitious do you think they were when they plucked the strings on a harp that was God's? They knew 
They knew exactly why they were there. They knew who brought them there. They knew what they were freed from. How intense do you think they plucked? How loud do you think they lifted their voices? Just a, another heavenly perspective. And they sang a specific song, the Song of Moses, which is a fascinating song because in, in the book of, of Exodus in chapter 15, there's this Song of Moses that's being sang, but it follows something. It falls right in line with the nation of Israel being liberated from Egypt. They come to the Red Sea. God parts the Red Sea. They walk through on dry ground, about two and a half million of them. When the last slowpoke makes it to the other side, whoever that was, they're like, okay. You know, it's like Pharaoh's army comes in. And when Pharaoh's army comes in, God does something supernatural. He takes the wheels off of their chariot. He's like, eh, you've went far enough. Oh, no more wheels. It just knocks them off. And at that time, you're on the other side. You know that you're about to really take one from the enemy, and all of a sudden, God's like, not just a few of their wheels fell. It says all their wheels fell off. I'd be going, that's insane. I'd be like, I'm on the right side. I'm on the right team. This is great. Then Moses goes over there, he stretches out his hand, and it says that the Lord brought the waters, completely covered their enemy. Do you think you would want to sing right about them? Yeah, that's what Exodus 15 is all about. And, and it says, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. That's just a, a snapshot of it. What a trip. These tribulation saints who found victory in Jesus because they put their faith on him in death during the tribulation are now standing with him in heaven, and they're singing that very song. What a trip. It's like, we are here because of you. You have brought victory to us. Then the second song is the song of the Lamb. And there's, there's lyrics to this. It's almost like, eh, it's a new song. Song of Moses, yeah, that's been sang a few times. We kind of know that. Hey, here we go. Heaven knows it for sure, breaking out in that chorus. But now a new song. And it's really, again, focusing on the wonderful work of God. And I, I don't want us to miss this perspective seen from heaven. As God is about to pour out his wrath, the sea of glass mingled with smoke. Seven angels, or an angel handing out these seven bowls to these seven angels. As, as God is about to pour out his wrath on the Christ-rejecting world, John sees this. All of the tribulation saints see this as well. They begin to sing. True and just are your ways. Your judgments have been manifest. Again, no one is like singing the song, I can't believe God, a loving God would allow this. These are believers in heaven who have lived their life in a, again, fallen, evil, dark world that was getting crazy bad. A world that mocked God, opposed God, hated and rejected the ways of God, persecuted the people of God, and did not fear the judgment of God. These are believers in heaven that, that, that prayed while they were on earth, much like we do now on earth, 
for God to bring an end to the evil on the earth. Now in heaven, they see God judging the evil in the world, and they sing, just and true are your ways. Your judgments have been manifest. You alone are holy. What does that mean? They are praising his worthiness. In other words, what you're doing is right. This is right. We see your holiness. And then they also in their song are recognizing his sovereignty over all of this, over the whole world, and his right to judge the world. For all nations shall come and worship before you. That everyone being judged has placed themselves under God's judgment by rejecting him and the salvation that he offers they see as right and just. Listen, they're glorifying God as he's judging evil and the unrighteous. His ways, including his judgments, are just. Just and true are your ways. Now, I believe that we as Christians, most of us have a very healthy view of justice. There are some Christians I talk to and I believe that their view of God is, is not in line with God's word as it relates to God's judgments. And they, they question God judging the way he did in the Old Testament. They question God's judgment maybe in the future as they think about the book of Revelation. But it's just a skewered view of God. In heaven, we won't have any skewed, skewed, wrong view of God. That's the word. <laughs> too many words coming together there. No words going. We'll have a right view of God. And we'll be, it's, he's just. And everything he does is just. Innately within us, we have a moral compass when it comes to justice. We've all driven, and we're keeping the speed limit on the freeway, and we see someone fly by. And you're like, eh, it's that little Mario Andretti wannabe guy. Yeah, we have those guys everywhere. Now, if you were driving and they flew by you and startled you, you'd be like, oh, man. There'd be a little bit of a different response. I remember a guy one time, he, I was driving, and he, he was really going fast. And then up a ways, little did we know, two or three miles down, there was a traffic jam. So he passed me, and he said, well, you know, whatever. And so when we got close, he's like one car in front of me when we get to the traffic. And I'm like, yes. Then I saw him, and he, and, he, and he started doing the weave thing, cutting this person off and getting in this person. Everyone's, like, irritated by the guy. And I even saw him. He was just one guy in the car, and he broke into the carpool lane. Took off, pulled back in. I was watching him way up there. And I'm like, oh, But then, a few miles up the road, there is this guy pulled over, and there's a CHP officer the nicest, brightest, smartest CHP officer I'd seen that day. <laughs> Riding that guy a ticket. Now follow me here, okay? This is going to go deep. It's a little humorous, but it's going to go deep. I think every one of us in that setting would be like, yeah, he deserved that. Yeah, right? There's law. There's justice. He broke the law. He deserves what he gets, right? Now follow me. What if... He not only flew by your car, but he sideswiped your car. 
What if someone was in your car that when he hit your car, they were hurt? Follow me? There we go. What if you went a little bit farther and you looked off to the side of the road and you saw people being attended to because he had crashed into a car? Now your idea of, oh, don't let it go any longer would kick in, right? Yes? Stop this before he does more evil would kick in, right? Amen? And then when you would see him finally pulled over and being cuffed, you'd be like, <laughs> yes. In a sense, that's heaven's perspective. They see it clearly now. They see God for who he is, and they understand justice in its clearest, purest form now. Now, they're singing this song they're strumming, recognizing God's fairness and thanking him for the victory. But it's the song of the lamb. Well, it's the lamb's job to get them there. Jesus as the lamb. To get who there? Everyone that doesn't deserve it. Everyone that deserves the judgment of God. From heaven's perspective, we will sing towards God and about God with a clarity, with a sobriety, like, oh, man, I, I realized what I was. I was born into sin, and, and I deserved the wrath of God and the judgment of God. But because of Jesus alone and what he did on the cross, I simply accepted him as my Lord and Savior. I'm singing for the rest of eternity. And that's the two perspectives you got the perspective on earth of all of those that have fallen in line with the philosophy of earth, looking at the Christ follower and the Christ acceptor and saying, you are defeated, you are a loser. But then you got heaven's perspective. And they got harps of God. And they're worshiping him for who he is and what he has done. And it's a new song. Lastly, in verse 5, he sees, as he looks here after these things, I looked and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened here. And out of the temple came the seven angels having the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen and having their chests girded with gold bands. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were complete. Just... Enough time just for a couple of observations. Number one, the temple in heaven is open. So open. The temple on earth, at the time of John's writing this, had been destroyed 25 years prior to John getting this revelation on the Isle of Patmos. 
and him being inspired to pen down these words. But that temple that was destroyed in 70 AD was only open all the way to where once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the high priest could go in and offer sacrifice on behalf of the people. That's just kind of the, go through the book of, of, of Hebrews and it really contrasts the supremacy of Christ in heaven, that it's all about him in heaven and him as our priest, but it contrasts that, it compares that to the limiting aspects of the temple, the limiting aspects of a priest. A priest has a, you know, he's limited in his ability, he's limited in his lifespan. Jesus is our eternal high priest and he'll reign and rule and reign forever and ever. And the temple in heaven, the picture of the temple in heaven, it's the presence of God, everyone come in. The temple on the earth had a 15 by 15 by 15 room called the Holy of Holies. That's where the cherubim were, where God sat over the mercy seat that was the lid on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And again, one man, one time a year. But in heaven, the access to God, just the availability of our God, the perspective, he's, he's like he will be the light of heaven. He is, come on in, that's who he is. Isn't that a good word, by the way? So, yes, it is. Okay, thank you for agreeing with me, yes. Um, but the temple's filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. The tabernacle, when it was being dedicated in Exodus chapter 40, was filled with the glory of God. The temple itself, when it was built there on the Temple Mount, it was constructed and it was dedicated in 2 Chronicles 7 and it was filled with the glory of God. But now we see the smoke. The only time we see that smoke in the judgment of God comparison is when Isaiah is like, sees the Lord in heaven and his train fills, the, the, the train of his robe fills the temple and there's, there's the angels flying around saying, holy, holy, holy. And then in verse six, verse four of verse chapter six in Isaiah, it says, the post of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out and the house was filled with smoke. Well, Isaiah then was to be the receiver of the message from that God. He's like, oh, I'm undone, I'm unclean, you're so holy. But he would be the bearer of judgment. He would bring a message to the people warning them of God's judgment. And in that setting, much like this future setting, when God is about to pour out his judgment on people, there's smoke around the throne. Where does this leave us? This leaves us with a picture of two groups. And we have a choice. We could put ourselves in one group or the other. How many of you guys know that death is not an option? That death is pretty much, we will all face death. Amen? You understand that? Yeah. It's once appointed for man to die. And then after that, the judgment. So death is certain. We, we know that. And we know that there is a, an eternity called hell that is reserved for Satan and his angels. And God is a God of justice and love and of grace and of mercy. And, and, and he's given us a chance to not go there. If we will but recognize him as such, he is God. Recognize the fact that we are sinners and that our sin separates us from God, as his word says. And we will simply 
by faith, put our faith in Jesus, who died on the cross to forgive us of our sins, to forgive us. Put our faith in Jesus, who died to save us, ask him to save us. We will be saved. And then our eternity will be the choice we make in choosing Jesus is eternity with him as well. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me, Jesus said in John 14. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. That's God's heart. We don't want anybody to face the wrath of God. On earth... For throughout eternity, God has not subject us to that. He's not appointed us to that. But to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the judgment of God is unnecessary. Because Jesus died on the cross. He took the wrath. He took the penalty. He bore it on our behalf. He's the one that did that and said, it's finished. Nothing you can do, I've done it to tell us time. We but need to trust him and receive him in the salvation that he offers. Death is real. It's certain. Heaven is real. Maybe not so certain for people. Hell is real. Prayerfully not so certain for people. Every one of us will stand before God certain. The time to repair and get right with him is now while the door is open. Let's pray. Let's stand and then we will pray. He's going to ask us to put our heads just down. No one looking around here for a minute. But before God, as he is looking at our hearts, he knows our lives, he knows here and even online, you people that are online, he knows if you're saved, he knows if you're not. But this morning, if you've heard this message and you would say, man, Pastor Lance, I really would like that salvation. I, I don't want to miss the rapture of the church. I don't want to go through the tribulation. And if my life were to end today, I don't, I don't want to go to hell. I would like to go to heaven. And you would you really mean that. And you would say, would you, would you pray for me? Just Would you pray for me and even pray with me so I could accept Jesus? Would you just raise your hand up high? Just me and you. We're just looking. I see your hands over here to the right. Praise the Lord. In the middle of the right. The back and the left. Praise the Lord. Yeah, over here in the left as well. Praise the Lord. Anyone else? Unashamedly. Yeah. All right. Well, Lord, you see these hands. More importantly, you see their hearts. There's a lot of people here who just went, that's me. And I would just pray that right now as we, we lead them in this prayer, maybe even people online, that this would be a very tender, genuine moment between them and you. So if that's you, I want you to pray these words to God. You might not know what to say. I'm just, I know he needs to hear some things from us. 
And so I'm going to lead you in this prayer, but this is just pray it to him. Say it to him. Say, Father, I thank you for getting my attention today. I do not want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. And I realize this morning that I need to accept Jesus into my life to become my personal Lord and Savior. Just tell him that. So now I want you to talk to Jesus. Say, Jesus, I believe you are God, just like his word says. I believe that you died on the cross and rose from the grave three days later, just like your word says. And so I ask you right now to forgive me of my sin. Just ask him. Ask him to come into your life. Just say, Jesus, come into my life and and be my Lord and Savior right now. I accept you as my Savior, as my Lord, and as my soon-coming King. And just ask him. Say, fill me with your spirit. Fill me with your spirit. And in your way, you, 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 you come up with the words. I want you to thank him. Just thank him for saving you. Father, you are an amazing God, a patient God that is not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. And we thank you for your work this morning. People were saved here in this service or the service before. It's, it's just such a great thing to see you converting souls and bringing people into the abundant life and giving them the hope of eternal life with you. Thank you for that, Lord. And we pray that as a body we get to know these people and help them walk with you as well. Continue to do your work in our lives. Bless your bride. Bless individuals and marriages and families and give us the strength to walk with you and to be bold for you in these very trying, dark days. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's give a a hand to the Lord now for just his work that he's done. Again, it's always good to see people. I would encourage you as we're going through these latter chapters of the book of Revelation, we're going to be trimming things down and giving more of an opportunity, expecting you to bring your friends and relatives and giving an opportunity for people to clearly hear a gospel invitation at the end. And um, I, we're going to work that in at the end of our services a little bit more um, definitively. So be praying for your friends and invite them to listen or listen uh, here or online. And we will uh, see what God will do. If you did accept the Lord this morning, we'd love to give you a Bible, give you a hug. And um, you can go over to our resource center or the welcoming table and people would love to talk to you over there. But uh, if you're new here, we got the welcoming lunch down at the cafe. Um, but here, there, or in the air, we love you guys. God bless you.